This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So yeah, I'm going to talk about um, Aquinas' views on happiness and um, human happiness in particular. And I'll start talking about a Swedish uh, theologian, a very influential 20th century called Anders Nygren. I uh, wrote a big, fat, actually two-volume work called Eros and Agape, and uh, had a big influence on me when I was younger. Um, so he argued that uh, there was a deep incompatibility between uh, the Greek philosophical tradition and Christian theology on the nature of human happiness and the health of human happiness, right? So, so in, in Greek philosophy, especially in, in Plato, let's say, you have this emphasis on eros, which is kind of desiring for, of God, right, as, as some good for us to have him, so to speak. The emphasis, uh, Nigrin says it's, it's a kind of selfish love, right? Uh, I've got this God-shaped vacuum, right, that I need to fill, and God's going to be it. And Anders contrasts that with agape in the New Testament, which he says is this absolutely selfless love, right? We love God for his own sake, completely oblivious to whether it uh, satisfies any need that I might have. And then uh, Nygren argues that uh, Augustine, and then later Aquinas especially, attempted to synthesize these two incompatible traditions. Right? Uh, Augustine using the Latin word caritas uh, as, as a way of kind of blurring the distinction between Platonic eras and, uh, and uh, Christian agape. Uh, so I'm gonna, he's, uh, is sort of my bet uh, noir here, right? He's, he's the object of uh, my criticism for this talk. I'm going to argue that, in fact, uh, there isn't a deep incompatibility here between uh, the Greek philosophical tradition and Catholic view, so that Augustine and Aquinas, and actually the Eastern fathers too, uh, were right in, in trying to put these two perspectives together. So that's that. I'm gonna, you know, give Nygren his due. I'm gonna try to build up the case as well as I can there's a deep incompatibility. So halfway through the lecture, you might think, oh my gosh, that's just hopeless. <laughs> What's Goon's going to do? Uh, <laughs> uh, so hopefully we'll feel that way anyway. And then, and then we'll, I'll sort of uh, wheel, roll out uh, our, my philosophical bag of tricks, which is uh, when in philosophy you, you confront something that looks like a contradiction or a paradox. Uh, what we generally do is find distinctions, make distinctions so that we can say, in this sense, yes, in that sense, no and then the contradiction hopefully goes away. So I'm going to have multiple distinctions. You're going to be needed, actually, to get through this particular uh, set of, uh, of problems. Uh, I might mention briefly uh, C.S. Lewis, too. If you've read The Four Loves, and it's a pretty popular book, uh, he, you know, you're sort of familiar with Eros, Agape, uh, Philia, and so on. And actually, Philia is important, too, in the story, but I'm not going to talk about it very much. Because I, I, here's another thing I think Nigel got wrong, is that he, he, he discovers there's some real tensions in this tradition. And he assumes that they came, they came about by trying to meld together this Greek and uh, Christian perspectives. But I think the tensions he identifies, which are real tensions, are already there in Aristotle. So in a sense, they're internal to the philosophical tradition rather than the result of trying to hybridize these two disparate ideas. And you see this in, in Aristotle's notion of philia that in effect has many of the same tensions that uh, Thomas and, and Augustine's notion of caritas uh, has as well. But I won't actually talk about that. <laughs> We're gonna talk about Aquinas tonight. Another so I'll just mention that, that in passing. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's talk about um, the, some uh, Thomistic theses to begin with. So I'm, I'm drawing here on some work by David Gallagher, who was a, who's a philosopher who uh, taught at Catholic University for many years. He's an independent scholar these days. This is a paper of his in 1999 that you can find in uh, Active Philosophica, Volume 8, if you want to look it up. I can send you a PDF at some point if you'd like. 
And he draws out eight different theses about human happiness, the ultimate end of human happiness, human beings. And uh, it helps, I think, set the groundwork for the tensions and contradictions that I'm going to try to uncover in this position. OK, so first of all, um, and th there's going to be a little bit of metaphysics here at the beginning. So uh, you know, uh, hold on to your, your seatbelt and a little bit of rough turbulence here to begin with. Uh, then it'll hopefully get a little smoother. So first, first thesis, and I guess I should explain something about what a substance is too, before I get into too deep on this. So uh, the word substance, as Aquinas uses it, substantia is, a, is used is the Greek word usia, and goes back to Aristotle again that uh, a substance for Aristotle is not something like milk or copper or whatever. It's, it's rather a particular thing that's one of the fundamental building blocks of the universe. So a thing that exists uh, in its own right has a profound kind of unity to it. Okay. Uh, and, and among the substances, according to Aristotle, are, are you and me. Uh, so human beings and other animals and organisms more generally are paradigms, actually, for Aristotle of substances. So Aristotle is not an atomist. He doesn't think that the fundamental things are microscopic little bits, as Democritus did, or as most modern physicists seem to think. Uh, he also wasn't a monist like Monides. He didn't think the whole universe was the only fundamental thing. He thought that medium-sized objects like you and me could be fundamental entities in the world. Uh, so I'm neither a heap of particles. Right? I have a kind of unity to me that's, uh, that, that is different from actually any artifact, in fact. Uh, or uh, you know, if, if we found just a pile of mud or something, it would, it would lack the same kind of unity that I have. Right? And I'm also not merely a fragment of the universe or a fragment of some larger social organism either. Um, the organism is a kind of heap of people, but uh, we're not heaps of particles, right? We're, we have, uh, we're, we're the, part of one of these building blocks of the universe. So for Aquinas, and for us all too, um, every substance in that sense has a single coherent end, uh, telos in the Greek, uh, in the Latin, end a thing for which, towards which that substance is tending. Okay. Uh, again, I'll say something real briefly about this. Um, uh, sometimes Aristotle and Thomas are caricatured as thinking that you know, earthy stuff has a desire to go to the center of the universe, right? So it feels the pull of the center of gravity and it tries to move down. And it's pretty clear that they don't think that, right? They don't, they don't ascribe to inorganic things or to plants, you know, the kinds of felt desires that animals have or certainly not the kind of sophisticated aspirations that human beings have. But nonetheless, they think that every substance, including even organic ones, are unified by, by a set of tendencies right, that, are, that are coherent. So, uh, so every rock, every piece of ice, every body of water uh, does have certain inherent tendencies which unify the substance. And so the kinds of desires that we have, that animals have and we have, are um, different from what we find in the inorganic world, but they're continuous with the inorganic world. It's not as though the world was this utterly purposeless, aimless stuff, and then we came along and introduced purpose the first time in the universe. It's kind of Sartre's picture, right? That's, that's not Aristotle's Aquinas' view. So, uh, so, as I said, a substance has a kind of unity, right, that makes it one thing. Right? And for Aristotle and for Thomas both, uh, this is tied up with its having a single end. Right? If you or I had multiple distinct ends, then we would be a kind of chimera, or would be a kind of uh, glomming together of discrete, discrete uh, entities, 
right? Um, so if, if Freud were right, and I had an id and a superego and ego, and they're all sort of pulling off in different directions, then that wouldn't really be a single thing. I'd actually just be, again, a chimera made up of these three different uh, distinct tendencies. So, so Aquinas assumes um, that every substance, ourselves included, that our unity really consists in our having a single coherent end towards which we are, of course, striving. That's what makes us one thing. And similarly, um, what makes us many, right? What makes Brian and I two different substances is that we don't have exactly the same end, at least not numerically the same end, uh, and uh, otherwise we would, we would just be part of some larger whole. We would be, uh, we would, we would be a single, again, kind of divided substance of some kind. So, every, so, so principle one here, again, every substance has a single end, and uh, every, um, every, every two substances have two distinct ends. Second principle, uh, every substance aims at its own perfection. So here we get a little more specific. What is it that every substance is striving to do? For Aristotle, for Aquinas, we're all striving, this is true for inorganic things and plants and animals as well, They're all, we're all striving to perfect ourselves. Uh, that is, um, and this is, I think, especially clear in, in animals and living organisms, right? That as we, as we study how human beings work, just physiologically and so on, right, we find that there are processes of development that are carrying us towards a certain state in which certain kinds of faculties, powers, and potentialities will be actualized in us and exercised throughout our human life. So, uh, so every, every substance has a nature, and that nature exists, or in a, mostly in a state of potentiality, but it points towards towards its full actuality, which is the perfection of that nature. So what we get from these first two theses, really, is the idea that there's a, there's a foundation in nature, in the world as it exists, for value, right, for goodness. Right? What is it that makes for a good human life? It's not up for you and me to decide for ourselves. It's built into our human nature. We can't help but pursue the human end. That's what makes us human. That that's what makes us exist in the first place. I wouldn't exist at all if I weren't striving towards this one fixed ultimate end, which is the perfection of my own nature. Okay, this is three. Getting a little even more specific now about uh, yeah. Sorry. Did we go, did we gloss over what complete means in one and two? Or yeah, um, I was uh, using that term really just to mean um, uh, just to emphasize the idea that substances are not fragments of smaller things, right? So, uh, so really, I could drop the word complete there, in fact. Um, the point is that something like a hand or a blood cell isn't a substance in our cells picture, because those things don't make sense in and of themselves. Right? You just found a hand lying around somewhere, you didn't know anything about human beings, you have no idea what it's for. Right? It's only by looking at it in the context of the whole human being that its purpose becomes clear. But once you get to a complete human being, right, the purpose of a human being now is clear. You don't have to find some larger context. You need to put that human being in, in, in uh, some larger context in order to figure out what it's for. It's, it has a purpose that's uh, self-contained. So that's, that's the sense of completeness I'm talking about here, uh, completeness of a substance. We can talk about it a bit later in the discussion. Uh, okay, so two, in three, now we're going to be a little more specific. We're going to focus on human beings in particular. Right? The ultimate end of human beings is, is the beatific vision, right? which means um, the state in which we can, uh, which God gives himself to us in such a way that we can see or understand or grasp his own nature. 
spiders, ineffable, infinity, perfection, so on. Uh, and Thomas talks quite a bit about why this is, and Thomas does. Um, he, he thinks, along with Aristotle, that the most important features about human beings are our intellectual capacities. I think it distinguishes us from all other animals, that we can not only see things, but understand things. And he thinks that, again, we can see this as really built into human life in a very fundamental way, that is, we, we want to understand things so that we can appreciate them and contemplate them, ultimately. Uh, so it's not just idle curiosity, it's a desire to, to know. And, um, and for Thomas, for us all too, you don't really know something unless you know its causes. You have to know what causes something to exist in order to really know it. But, of course, the chain of cause and effect, this is only a lecture, of course, has to terminate somewhere. It has to be the ultimate cause of everything, and that turns out to be God. So no human being, Thomas thinks, can ever really be satisfied without knowing God as the first cause. And the amount of knowledge we can have of God in this life is very limited. Really, all we can do is infer that there's some infinite necessary being that um, caused the universe we have, but we can't really know what it's like. Know the nature of that being. So, in order for us to truly be satisfied, God has to come along and give, give Himself to us in a special way, and that will be the beatific vision, where He will reveal Himself to us such and such a way that this craving that we have to know and understand will, will finally be satisfied. And so, that's that's the ultimate end for which all human beings are really that all human beings are pursuing, whether they know it or not. Right? The thing that actually makes sense of all of their actions, the thing towards which they're being drawn magnetically, uh, and many human beings are confused about this, right? They may think that what they're looking for is honor, or wealth, or a long life, or health, or something like that, power. But in fact, um, the, the, that's a confusion. That's a case where, they, where people don't really know what it is they're ultimately seeking. What they really are seeking, turns out, is God, is the gate of vision. Okay, so thesis four. Um, Self-love is the foundation and principle of all other loves, including one's love for God. I give several citations here in the Summa Theologica, in the Summa Contragatilis, in commentary and sentences in Aristotle as well. So, um, so by self-love here, I just mean the fact that each, as I mentioned in premise two, right, each substance is seeking its own perfection. Right? And so I am seeking my perfection. I uh, Anne Claire seeking her perfection, Brian seeking his perfection, and so on. That's a kind of self-love, right? Uh, I can't really directly seek Brian's perfection the way that Brian can, right? Uh, but I can seek my own. And in fact, I do seek my own, right? Because every substance seeks its own perfection, right? So necessarily, there's a kind of uh, self-reference here uh, in, in, in Thomas's uh, metaphysics. Okay? All right, so that's the first four theses. Now we're going to sort of turn a corner with the next one. And now we're going to look at some other theses that Thomas embraces that do stand in some sort of tension to this picture that we've just, uh, just drawn so far. So the next one is what's called the order of charity, ordo caritatis. Um, and um, actually, maybe this is still part of the same story, but, but, but a bit complicated. So on, on this view, um, Thomas is very clear that um, we should care about other people. We should care about the welfare of other people. But he doesn't think that the rational person, the perfectly virtuous person, uh, is going to seek the welfare of everyone in the world to exactly the same degree. In fact, you're going to pursue, pursue your own happiness, your own good, uh, more than you're going to pursue the good of other people. 
you're going to pursue the good of your own family and your own family members more than other, more than violate people, the good of the people of your community more than people in other communities. And this is not only it's a brute fact, this is right, right? Because this is the way human beings work. Right? This, is, this is how we're so designed to be. So, uh, so Thomas would not admire someone who, let's say, completely sacrificed his family, his children, in order to help people who were starving in some remote country. He would think that that was vicious rather than virtuous, right? because the order of charity says, look after your own household first. Right? Not that you have no concern for others, but in terms of weighing importance, there's a set of concentric circles here, right? where the greatest intensity is in the smaller circle, to be most of yourself. Looking after your own your own good that takes priority over everyone else's. So again, this is uh, looking a bit self-centered, you might say. Uh, you can see how Anders uh, Nigrin is going to think. Okay, this is not really it's not very efficient so far. Um, but um, but then let's look at uh, thesis six. Um, and this is also very much in Thomas and in this song. One loves one's own friend for his or own own sake, not merely as a means a means to one's own fulfillment. Right? And this is especially true for God. So as Gallagher puts it, um, his theory provides for an extension of the self, self to include the others, so that a person could be willing his own good, and willing the good for the other, and willing it precisely as being in the other. Right? So Thomas is saying, we don't want to instrumentalize our friends. We don't want to treat our friend's good or his, his or her happiness as merely a means to my happiness. Right? It's not, I don't do good things for my friend just because He'll do good things back, or even because it makes me feel good, and he feels good. Uh, we do it precisely for the good of the other person as such. Um, important thing, and of course, as we'll see, that's especially true when we get to God. Right? Uh, seventh, uh, the whole is prior to and therefore superior to its parts. And, um, and this, is, this applies also to the community, the political community. Right? Therefore, the rational, virtuous person loves the whole community more than he loves himself. Right? Because he's merely a part of the community, the community is greater than he is, so naturally he would love the community more than himself. And then finally, finally to God, uh, the perfected love, perfected saint loves God above all else and loves himself only for the sake of God. So even the love I have for myself becomes now uh, a, a love that I so things that I do for the sake of God, for his own sake. Right? So I don't, I don't, I'm not looking to God to meet my needs or simply as an instrument to satisfy myself, but I'm truly seeking God's good, his greater glory, things like that, for, for their own sake. Okay, so you can see that there are some tensions, right? I don't need to, some of these I don't need to make too explicit, right? They probably jumped out at you as I, as I went through these. Um, there's a tension between... Um, Theses, uh, it's going sort of backwards. Uh, thesis five and seven, you might say. Uh, the order of caritatis, the order of charity says there's concentric circles, right? You should care more about yourself than other people, your own family, more than other, other families, and so on. But seven says, but you should love your community more than yourself, right? And therefore, more than your family, too, right? Because it's really a part of, this, of the community. That sounds like a contradiction, right? Um, next contradiction. Um, can we justify six through eight? Shaw emphasized the idea of doing things for the friend for his own sake, right? or for God for, for his own sake. Right? Um, and, um, and for the community for its own sake. Right? If given two and four, right, 
every substance seeks its own perfection and as its ultimate end. And according to 2.4, that self-love is the foundation of all other loves. So how can it be the foundation of all other loves, the thing that you seek is your own ultimate end, and yet at the same time be the case that you somehow set it aside and want to love the friend or God for, for their own sake. So that's, that's a problem. Um, similarly, actually, one illustration of this problem might be what the, what the Apostle Paul writes in, in Romans 9.3, sort of an interesting case, where there Paul says that he would be willing to be accursed, cut off from Christ, uh, for the sake of his kinsmen according to the flesh, that they might be saved. So these are the Jewish uh, kinsmen. So he, there he seems to be saying he'd be willing to sacrifice his own ultimate good, right, to be accursed even, for the sake of these other people. How can that be reconciled with one and Jesus uh, at uh, two and four? Right? That, in fact, uh, if, if Paul were perfectly virtuous, his own self-love would be the foundation of all of loves. Okay, um, third, third contradiction. Um, don't friends become instrumentalized, given two to four, right? My own perfection is my ultimate good. I do everything else for the sake of that ultimate end, my own perfection. Then doesn't the happiness of my friend become merely a means to my end? And so now I'm not just using my friends as instruments for the sake of my own happiness. And yet, uh, premise uh, eight says, uh, that you, six says you cannot do that. Should be seeking friends' good or his own good, her own good, not for your own good. Um, and similarly, don't we instrumentalize God in the same way? So, aren't we again replacing agape with Erebus? Like its point here again, is it really instrumenting God? And then finally, uh, contradicts is four and five, something like this. Um, suppose that we say, let's, let's, we're going to go with six or eight, right? Those are obviously right, right? And so we're going to say that you do love your community, you do love your friends, you do love your God, God, God for, for their own sake. Right? Now that we have multiple ultimate ends for the individual substance, right? I will my own perfection, but also will my family's perfection, my friends' perfection, of course, I will God's greater glory. Uh, and now it looks like I'm fragmenting myself right, into these separate bits that somehow belong together. That seems to destroy the unity of the substance, so it creates real problems for Thomas is metaphysics at that point. And then finally, fifthly, if we, if we try again to suppose that um, we have these common ends, right? so, uh, so my end includes my friend's end and his friend and, and includes me, then don't I and my friend have actually the same ultimate end, which is our collective happiness? Or if we're part of the same community, or if we have a single end, which is the good of all community, or if we're all perfected saints, we have one end, which is the great glory of God, doesn't that destroy our individuality, our distinctness as persons? Now it seems like we are just one substance, right? Humanity or something, but single end, we go to God, as opposed to the individual ends that we need to have in order to be distinct substances. So those are some of the problems that I think appear once we look at, uh, at Thomas's view. So as I mentioned, um, if a philosopher faces a number of contradictions like this, and, and uh, one's convinced, well, these aren't really contradictions. There's something, there's merely an apparent problem here. What we have to do is find distinctions to make so that we can explain how both things that seem to be contradictory actually can be true once we make these distinctions. So I want to mention um, six distinctions here. Uh, so actually, more distinctions than we have contradictions. We'll see, we've got to need a, lot of, a lot of tools to get through all this. Um, first distinction is between, this is actually the most important one, I think. It's a distinction between two distinctions. Okay, so it's a bit complicated. Uh, it's a distinction between 
the distinction of intrinsic and extrinsic, or instrumental and intrinsic, sometimes put it as goods, and the distinction between ultimate and derived goods. So, um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that an, ex an extrinsic good, or an ex instrumental good, is something that's chosen because it leads to some separate end. Right? It causally produces some other result, which is what we're really interested in. Right? So, if I get some kind of oral surgery, right, uh, I'm not doing that because I like to have oral surgery, right? This is end in itself, right? It's because it will produce causally some external thing, like health of my mouth and so on which is the thing I really want. Right? So that's a, that's a classic example of an extrinsic or instrumental good. Right? Now, um, intrinsic good is something that I seek for its own sake. And we saw in, in 6 through 8 that the good of the friend, the good of the community, the good of God should be intrinsic goods. It should be things I seek for their own sake. How do we reconcile that with 1 to, one to 2, 1 to 4? Um, we, we, we have to make a distinction here between, um, again, intrinsic and extrinsic, or intrinsic instrumental on the one hand, and ultimate versus derived, on the other hand. Okay. So, the, um, the good of my friend is an intrinsic good for me, but it's not my ultimate good. Right? Why not? Because to explain why my good, my friend's good is good for me, I have to understand my nature. I have to understand what affects my nature. So the explanation for why the friend's good is good is not self-explanatory. It's not self-evident. It depends metaphysically on the kind of thing that I am, and a social being, political being, that needs to have, that, that lives in friendship with other people, right? And that ultimately, of course, lives in friendship with God. That's our ultimate end. So, um, so when we desire, when I desire my friend's good, I do desire it, in a sense, as contributing to my own perfection. Right? I do desire it under that description. Because that explains why it's good for me. But I don't desire it as a means to some further end, as though my perfection were somehow separate from my friend's happiness, or some an effect of my friend's happiness. Right? It's rather that uh, my friend's happiness is incorporated into my own happiness. Right? It becomes an intrinsic part of, a constituent of my ultimate end. So that my, my nature is perfected in my friend's nature being perfected. And of course, ultimately, my nature is perfected in God's glory being, being magnified right? in, in my friendship with God. So, uh, so that's, I think that's the fundamental thing, as I said, the most important distinction of all. Um, let me give you a quick illustration of this. So, uh, so according to Thomas, right, every animal, like a squirrel, right, has a sort of ultimate end, which is to live the squirrely life <laughs> to its fullest. Right? That's, that's the thing that makes it a squirrel. Right? Now, does that mean that the squirrel instrumentalizes the collecting of nuts? Right? So that the nuts are good simply because it contributes to his living the squirrel life? Well, no, actually, because collecting and eating nuts, that is the squirrel life. Right? Uh, it's, not, it's not something that sort of causally contributes to his, his maximizing his squirreliness. Right? It is his squirreliness right? in, in, in action. And so, uh, so, it's, it, so the, the animal has intrinsic goods besides its own perfection. Food, shelter, mates, and so on. Those are, those are intrinsic goods for the animal, right? Even though they're not ultimate goods, they derive goods and they depend upon its nature being a certain way. There's a metaphysical explanation for why those things are the good of that creature. Okay, so that's the first, I think, the most important distinction. Uh, second distinction that's important, maybe less important for this particular discussion, but important for other reasons, 
is a distinction between corporal goods and, and spiritual goods. Right? So human beings have both souls and bodies, and uh, they're not two different substances for, for Aquinas, but nonetheless, they are two aspects of us. And so some of our goods we can clearly identify as corporal goods, like getting enough food to eat, getting shelter, and so on. Right? And then there are things that are spiritual goods, um, ultimately union with God, right? fellowship with God, that's the ultimate spiritual good. And clearly, uh, and the client's very clear that I should love um, my, my neighbor's spiritual good over my own corporal good. Right? So, uh, so I'd be willing, I should be willing to sacrifice my life and sacrifice all my goods and so on for the sake of the spiritual good of my neighbor. Because that's just a good of a much higher level. Right? But, Aquinas thinks, should not sacrifice your spiritual good for the spiritual good of another. Um, he's very clear about that because this is a quarter charity. You should love yourself. Your own spiritual good comes over the head of the spiritual good of someone else. Um, now, we might say, well, wait a minute. Right? What about Romans 9 3, right? uh, where Paul seemed to say he was willing to sacrifice his good? Well, uh, interesting enough, I wondered that myself. Like, well, what does Thomas say about this? So I looked at his commentary in Romans, and he actually talks about this. And he says, look, um, Anyway, I found some place where he talks about it. And he says, Paul is not there saying that he would be willing to sacrifice his own beatific vision, his own eternal life for the sake of, of, of others. He's saying that he'd be willing to postpone or defer that, uh, that end for the sake of others. And, and Thomas uh, appeals to Philippians. Um, I think it's uh, verse. Um, Philippians 1.23, where he says, um, uh, he's, he's talking to Philippians, he says, to remain in the flesh, I would prefer to, to go to, to, to God now, but to remain in the flesh is, is more necessary for your, for your sake. So he's, you know, he's willing to continue to do his ministry in the flesh for the sake of the Philippians, right? And, and I think he, he takes the same, the same idea to be working in Romans 9.3. Right? Not, not that he would be willing to brutally throw away his relationship with God, his, his beatific vision, for the sake of others, but that he would be willing to defer it. Um, or perhaps set aside some of the accoutrements that um, gives it a vision for the sake of others, but, but not, the, not the ultimate good itself. Okay, so that's the second distinction. Third distinction, we have to make a distinction here between the private good and the common good. Right? So, um, so again, private goods are goods that can't be shared. Right? So the food that I eat is a private good. Right? Uh, the uh, the warmth that I absorb is a private good. Um, the honor that I get is, is a private good, and so on. Because in and of itself, it's, it's, it's unshareable. Right? In contrast, a common good is something that's essentially indivisible. So, so this is a, there's a lot of confusion about this, I think, among, among Catholics, where uh, we, uh, sometimes when we use the word common good, we think that we can understand that in utilitarian terms. And so the common good is just the sum of all the private goods. This is Benjamin's picture or Mill's picture. It's not Thomas's picture at all. The common good is not a sum of private goods at all. It's completely separate from all the private goods. It's the good of the community as such, right? It's the good which is indivisible that we all enjoy just by virtue of being part of a, a well-run community, a community that's just, a community that's uh, that's holy, and so on, right? So I like. I think I think aesthetic examples are a good example, right? Uh, suppose that you join a choir, right? and you just really enjoy singing together, right? that experience of communal singing is a common good, right? because it's not really divisible. Right? 
can't sort of take your share of it and go away, right? Uh, and, uh, and the more people participate who are better singers, the greater the common good for all of us, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a kind of aggregate of private goods. And in general, common goods are greater for us than, than private goods. So that means that um, I should love um, the common good more than my own private good, or even private good in my own family, right? because uh, the common good is, is more important. But the common good of the community actually demands that I give a certain kind of preference to the private good of my own family and of myself, for that matter. Actually, Cicero talks about this, where at one point he considers whether you should turn in your father and find out your father's a traitor and, uh, or a criminal. And he says, no, right? And he says, but of course, you just got to be saying that you know, the common good is more important than your private good. So he says, but that's because the city itself prospers when people treat their father rightly. Right? So it's part of the common good that I look after my family right, and give it that sort, of, sort of priority. So, uh, so in fact, that's one another way of reconciling that particular contradiction. Um, if, again, if the common good were just some kind of aggregate, right, uh, and uh, then it wouldn't make any sense to say that I could give preference to my family when reducing the aggregate for others. But if it's, a, if it's, a un, it's an indivisible good that has to do with the way that we live together, then it makes sense, I think, for us to reconcile that with an order of charity as well at the same time. Um, so my private good, fourth distinction, my private good versus the private good of friends and neighbors. So now you can see how when we put the level of private goods, it makes sense for me to give priority to myself, my family, over others, even though at the level of common good, the community takes priority over us. Right? Uh, fifth distinction, um, this sort of applies the same idea to God. So God is, in a way, the common good of the whole universe, right, of, the whole, of all of reality. And so, um, and so for Thomas, there's actually a perfect unity between our good and God. Unlike the somewhat unlike the imperfect unity between our good and the good of any community, common good of any community. So, uh, so, so this is why Thomas says that we should love God uh, more than ourselves, right? because um, again, because God is our happiness. Right? He is that in which our happiness consists. He, it's not that He's just a source of goodness right? or a source of uh, value for me. He is the thing that is my, is my ultimate good, my ultimate value. Right? Uh, and so, uh, so there's no, in a way, there's no room here even to discuss whether I should give my perfection or God the greater priority, because they're essentially the same thing. My perfection just consists in my unity of God. And that leads to my last distinction, which Thomas makes, um, which is a distinction between my own happiness and my enjoyment of my happiness. So, uh, so my happiness and your happiness too are God. God is our happiness. This is Boethius actually says this as well. Uh, but of course, my enjoyment of God and my beatific vision is just distinct from your enjoyment of God and your beatific vision. So, so the enjoyment of that of that end is distinct from different people. And so that again provides us with the foundation for the distinctness between two human beings. So I don't sort of merge into that into a single entity. Resolve this process. Okay, so now we can see, I think, how to resolve the different contradictions that I mentioned earlier. We can sort of wrap it up at this point. Um, the tension between self-love and the order of charity or the superiority of the whole 
again, we have to distinguish between private goods and common good here. Um, so the, the common good takes priority over private goods. Uh, secondly, you love God more than the human community because the unity between self and God is greater. Um, God can't be separated from one's own all-inclusive good. One's happiness just consists in that unity with God. Uh, clearly, beatific vision takes priority over anyone's private good. And um, you know, everybody's explained you know, that the practicing the order of charity is itself part of the common good. Right? So there's not, not a lot of conflict between those two. Uh, Self-sacrifice and fundamental love. Again, you have to distinguish between one's private good and one's all-inclusive good. So the good of one's union with God is greater than any human common good. Um, so in the end, so within, our, within this life, the, the, the happiness, the good of two friends tends to converge in such a way that there's an overlap between the two. Right? So that in seeking my happiness, I am seeking friends' happiness and vice versa. Right? But they don't perfectly coincide. Whereas my happiness in God does perfectly coincide. So that it, uh, to, to love God above all things is to love my own happiness. And, uh, and I'll explain how we get the, we get the uh, uh, plurality of persons. What about my, my ontological unity, right? How, how am I unified? Well, I'm unified because ultimately all the goods of any human being converge upon this one good union with God. That's the thing towards which, in which all the other goods are are absorbed in some sense. And one thing, I, I'll just mention this in closing, an interesting consequence of all this, is that uh, Thomas is pretty clear that the beatific vision is itself a kind of common good. Right? So in other words, it's not something that we're going to enjoy individually, individualistically. We're going to enjoy it together. right? And that togetherness of our enjoyment of the vision is itself going to be part of that perfection that we're aiming at. Okay, so let's start with resolutions. And then we have plenty of time for the questions. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. Thanks.